Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Kevin Lee, Head of Marketing at Oyster HR. In this episode, we talked about Kevin's experience with churn and retention at Buffer, Poly, and Oyster HR, and how the main reasons for churn differed at each company due to their business models and customer segments. We then discussed the role marketing played in each case to reduce churn. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you. For the listeners, Kevin is the head of marketing at Oyster, a distributed HR platform that enables global employment for companies everywhere. They're on a mission to create a more equal world and unlock opportunity for people regardless of their Kevin started out his career as a sports reporter before later joining Buffer, where he served as the VP of marketing. He's also a founding fellow of OnDeck and a product-led growth coach. So my first question for you, Kevin, is like, how do you feel your early experience as a reporter helped you on your career path you're on today? Yeah, I, I just think I had no concept of churn when I was a sports reporter. It was, <laughs> it was a much simpler role in a lot of ways. I think one of the things that I took away from that period was there's a lot of deadline pressure when you're working with a newspaper, when you're a reporter, and the paper's going to print at midnight. And whether, you're, whether your story's done or not, it's, it's going to print. And so there was a really it was a really useful time for me to understand how to deliver under pressure how to deliver under a, a timeline with a deadline i think that helps in the tech scene and the startup scene where you have to move fast in a lot of ways that it's not the same deadlines where something's going to go to print and you can't pull it back but if you're not moving fast enough then i think you, you start a to deadline is a deadline problems across the business so there's still some deadlines in, of a sort in this world and so that's one of the big takeaways for me from that period yeah, no, so yeah, I think, as you said, like the deadline in the startup, if you're not moving fast up, is a deadline. Like the, the startup just, and it's very interesting as well. Like, I think there was this one thing one of uh, my ex co founders said to me once, and it stuck with me so much is like, nothing makes us more productive than the last minute. And uh, I think if you think in the context as well of mentioned, like trying to reach these things, I like I often find as well, like when the pressure is really on, like that's when uh, like I become super productive, I think, and get things done. And My work tends to expand to fill the time that I give it. And so if I give myself too much time to do something, I will use all that time, whether I need it or not. And so I often think ahead and give myself some artificial depth and just to make how sure to, I, How to I cut it down. It. 
Nice. So we were chatting about this a little bit before, but you've had a few different roles now at uh, different like tech startups dealing with uh, Swaz and Trina. Maybe what would be nice, we agreed, would be good to just go through three different startups that you've been at previously, like what the challenges were with Trina retention there and how it came into your role. So maybe should we get started with Buffer? I think that's where I first actually came across your work as well was back in the day. I think Buffer was definitely and still probably is like one of the startup darlings. I don't know if you put it that way, just like the philosophy and uh, the way of working. And that really sets a lot of trends, I think, uh, for other startups that have been followed today. So uh, what was the experience like there? Yeah, that was fantastic. I, I joined as employee number 17 and we're around one or two million ARR, I think, at the time. And then was able to grow with the team and with the company past uh, almost up to 25 million. Um, the team ended up being close to 100. And so had a, a, a really fun journey there. Um, I started in a content marketing role and then eventually took over all of marketing as the, the company grew. Very nice. Yeah. And when it came to channel retention, obviously, I think like Buffer, in operating in a crowded space, like SMB is also typically very difficult when it comes to channel retention. What are some of the challenges uh, that you face as a business? And how did, what was marketing's responsibility within that then with that Buffer? Yeah, it was a really interesting experience to me just in terms of the scale that we had at Buffer and millions of users, hundreds of thousands of, of paying customers. Uh, but a very low price point. And I think that enabled a lot of movement of our user base across a number of different plans. And so we'd see uh, revenue churn looks diff- look differently for us. We measured that as maybe someone going from a, a business plan to a premium plan or a pro plan. We had customer churn where they, you know, folks would stop paying us on together. And so we had a number of different dimensions mm-hmm. to our churn problems or our churn metrics. And so we have a lot of different tactics then that we would need to apply to, to address different moments within there. I think from the marketing side, a lot of it was about coming up with our core differentiation from our competitors. So we were, we're in a space of social media management where there's great, wonderful tools like Sprout Social and Hootsuite. Later, the switch inertia from taking your social accounts from one place to another is not super great like super large and so it's, it's easy enough to switch back and forth and so what was unique about buffer and how do we communicate that within our, our marketing messaging so you mentioned um, buffer being a darling of the text scene our startup scene in, in some ways and i think a lot of that came down to our brand and our culture and so that ended up being a reason why people stayed with us uh, which was like totally separate from the product but learning how to lean into that as a way to retain was just a very unique lesson i think and, and unique to what we built at buffer yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of the things as well, we're saying this people, but I think like why people really overlook how many different factors can influence general retention. And this sort of factor of just like really leading into the brand and leading into the philosophy and the way of working can actually end up having that knock-on effect of helping you retain customers because they really buy into it and they want to be a part of what Buffer is building and what Buffer stands for. Absolutely. Yeah, we would look through the inbox sometimes and people would say, we're paying for you, even though we're not using you. <laughs> they're, not, they're not using the product, but they believe in what we're doing. What we're I don't know if that's, that's maybe a different problem or a different challenge, but like yeah, the exactly. fact is they, they stayed even though um, just for the brand itself. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that like, it's very difficult to measure the, and it also takes very long to see a big impact. It's not one of those like immediate things uh, that you can just, okay, we're going to, we need to solve for general attention. Let's start working on this. 
but I think the impact it has over time is probably one of the greatest uh, things you can have when you've built a brand that people absolutely love that they're sending you messages saying we're still paying you but we're not using you like uh, you can't get better than that I think yeah we like to think of brand as this this halo effect or this overarching layer on top of the other growth loops that we built and so if we built a growth loop around content or word of mouth I think brand then becomes just additional fuel or maybe maybe grease if it's the flywheel like it just makes the wheel spin even faster yeah. in a way like it's it's, it's not the wheel because people aren't going to come to buffer and pay for our product just because they know we're remote or that we're transparent um, yep. there has to be a core need there but once they have that core need hopefully we've already built that bias for exactly. them i think on the flip side brand can keep folks around but they're i think what we found over time was that it's not going to save you. It's not going to cure all woes. It's not going to save you forever. There is a, a point in which the product no longer serves the need to such a degree that they will leave even if they love the brand. They can stay a brand advocate without using your product. I think that's where the yeah. churn conversation for us really started uh, heating up a little bit. For sure. And I think that's also a really interesting topic on itself is that like, the jobs to be done of a customer when they first sign up versus like six months versus 12 months versus 18 months, those evolve over time, levels of sophistication increase and being able to adapt and move to those additional use cases as they grow sophistication becomes really important uh, as well. Maybe especially so, at least in our case in social media, where the networks themselves are evolving very fast. Therefore, our tools have to evolve very fast. And it's almost like we mapped our customer journey once and at the end of the customer journey, there became this, this cycle, this loop where you know, every month someone is making a choice whether to use Buffer again or not. We almost have to like reacquire them every month just because things are changing Move so, fast. so fast. Yeah, I think this was for me always like one of the biggest worries with businesses like that is when you're building your business on top of somebody else's business and the mountain rapid speed of change on both sides. Like, it's always playing this cat and mouse game of catch up, trying to make sure that you're delivering the goods. Yes. I'm interested in the sort of the work that you mentioned as well. So you found that like you really needed to focus on how Buffer was different. And obviously one side of it was the brand, but what did that work look like? How did the team go about figuring out uh, what those differentiators should be or how you should be presenting those differentiators? Was there any sort of specific research work that was done or... Yeah, probably like like a lot of companies, we had your traditional customer research and market research functions. So talking to users, talking to customers, talking to members of our audience on what they needed, what they wanted. So there's definitely an element of that. I think it got more clear for us over time as well as we narrowed in on a specific persona or an ideal customer profile. We got a lot more insight into what we should build and why we should build it. And so for us, as an example, Early on in, in my journey there, we had this choice whether we keep building for agency customers or whether we switch mm-hmm. gears and build for um, like small businesses. And I think an agency customer has different needs for a social media platform than a single small business where they, they, the agency would care about and doing things in bulk and profile management and reporting and all these different things. Whereas a small business owner cares about reach and quality and, and getting saving time and all, the, all these things like agencies care about that too but i think it's a very different use case yeah for us and so understanding the distinction between our personas there and then within that small business persona there's still a need to differentiate 
from the competitors. And so a lot of that then became competitive research, secret shopping or, or signing up and using, since we were all freemium products at the time, signing up and using other platforms and noticing the directions they were building in and, and then what we wanted to do ourselves. And so one of the features I remember that was unique was there was this concept of recycled content on social media. So if I had a post that did really well on Twitter, I might post it again once a month for every month forever, maybe. I don't think people do yeah. that anymore, but that was the case a few years ago. And so at Buffer, we could have built that into our platform. We just said, you know, click this button and we will reshare this post regularly throughout. And a lot of our competitors did that. I think for us, it was a conscious choice to, to move away from that with in the spirit of, we believe that there's, this is the way that you'll see success on social media. So we're building a platform for that, which then we can back up with messaging and, and campaigns and all sorts of marketing material. Nice. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting that notion of just looking at what competitors are doing out there and not being pulled into the sort of the bells and whistles that everybody has and feeling like you need to catch up on feature parity. I think that just becomes a trap. And it's one of the things like we're trying to be so careful with the, this time around is it like just really focusing on just doing one thing and doing one thing really well and knowing who you're doing that one thing really well for. But it is, I think in the early days, it's definitely a challenge. I don't think like Buffer started out with this, or you mentioned that you don't have this clear clarity from day one and figuring out that just takes time and a lot of work and a, a lot of research uh, at the end of the day. Cool. Yeah. Let's fast forward to then to the next company we spoke about was uh, Polly. Like maybe you can just give us a quick overview of what Polly does and what are some of the challenges that uh, you saw there? Yeah. So Polly is an instant engagement app for Teams and it lives within Slack and Microsoft Teams and Zoom. And so for, at, at Polly, we had a really powerful growth engine on the back of these marketplaces that we were part of. And so being a, an integration with Slack and Microsoft Teams, you get access to this huge audience, which is um, a fantastic way to grow a company quickly. And so we definitely felt the benefits and the, the tailwinds of that. I think the challenges that exposes for you is that a lot of people come into your product with their own preconception of what you do and what they're trying to get out of you. I think there's less of a, it's a much shorter customer journey in the sense that I'm, a, I'm an end user who is in the Slack marketplace one minute, clicking on Polly to install it the next, and then you know, using Polly with my team without having a very long education buying cycle at all. And so I think for us, there's obviously, there's a challenge there of how do you move someone from a free user to a paid user, but then once they become a paid user for whatever reason, how do you keep them there? How do you keep um, showing the value of Polly in, in the way that we believed was the true value? Like how do you get them to that, that idealized aha moment and state? And so a lot of that did come back to marketing. And so we have you know some control over what our presence looks like in the marketplaces and we optimize that. I think beyond that, then like how can we set ourselves up as a thought leader in the space that we want to be known for, which would be something akin to like real-time feedback for your team. Sometimes when you work remotely, you're not really sure how that Zoom call just went with your team because you don't see what people are talking about afterward or how what their body language is after, after the call. And so if you can send a quick poll or survey, um, you can get that pulse check. How do you collect feedback on a design that you're doing in Slack without having to wait you know, 24 to 48 hours. If you're sending a, a 
employee NPS survey and you want really good response rates, like you can do that within, within Poly. And so these use cases then became really important for us to shift perspective from, I use Poly to figure out where everyone wants to go for, for lunch to I use Poly for making my team better. Like we perform better when we use Poly. I think that performance bit was the real hook that would keep people protected if they kind of fell back down into thinking of Poly as a, a lunch pole app. That was where we would lose people. Yeah, that's very interesting. And then just really trying to understand what are all the different use cases of the product and educating um, the team. How did you go through that within the context of a Slack uh, app or Microsoft Teams? Like, how were you educating users of the different use cases and encouraging those? Uh, because I think you don't have the same freedom and flexibility you do have when it's your own product. And uh, what are some of the ways that you were trying to reach uh, your audience to let them know of these different use cases? Yeah, it's a really good observation. So we have a little bit of surface area within the products themselves within Slack and Microsoft Teams. And so when you initially get started, there's you know a home screen where we can put a bit of information we believe Poly does best. But probably the big the biggest lever for us ended up being templates. And so we tried to drive people into template usage where you say here's a template on how to ask this question or here's templates for meetings or here's templates for people in HR teams to ask folks about. And that was probably the biggest lever that we got to use because then we we could put our own spin on which ones we thought were most useful, most important. We could bring in data mindset of these are the ones that are most used and most popular. We can tie that into um, our own knowledge of data of like people who send this type of poll or survey end up staying activated, end up staying retained. So let's highlight that when we have these, these options within the app. And so it's kind of an interesting data play because you get so much data when you're in these marketplaces and have that amount of volume like how can you use that data then create a customer journey and experience that drives people toward uh, this this idealized end state toward that yeah so then like marketing really becomes about education and educating basically your customers how to use the product better as opposed to really thinking about how to reach customers because you solve that with the marketplace to some degree as well. So it's a bit of a switch. So one of the roles that was really important for us on the marketing side was a lifecycle role. And lifecycle for us looked a lot of different ways, but it was, you had your in-channel messaging. So when you send a poly, there's like a poly bot, then they can surface the results to you or can nudge you to check in. Or there's like a channel, there's email because we get email addresses. There's, um, just a lot of different ways that we can engage those users, but it is more about engagement rather than acquiring that stage. Nice. Yeah. And I think from, you mentioned the, the growth uh, loop that you get from it and the virality. We had Fletcher Reichman on the show before from help, which is also sort of, it was it started out as a Slack uh, integration and like the viral loop that they were able to create, there was unbelievable. I think if I remember correctly, that what they were able to do was when somebody installed help, into slack any user that they added to that channel that was created for help was automatically created an account within help that they would then have like a username and password they're going to go and log in so like the friction to onboard people onto their tool was almost like nothing like as long as you're in a slack channel you you've been added to help now and you have access to it and you can go and log in using your slack login so i found that like incredible how 
like you can spread so fast throughout an organization like that in the past like maybe you'd need to send an invite via email to your teammates or whatever no just join the slack channel and you're in Uh, (laughs) yeah slack makes it very seamless which which we appreciate a lot i think then the next trick is like how do you monetize to make the most of that volume and scale too without scaring people away and things so that's really a churn and retention but i think another big piece of that marketplace dynamic for sure i think slack's onboarding is i don't know a better company that does onboarding better than slack and then like managed to replicate that experience as well for uh, their marketplace which is amazing fast forward now then today oyster hr uh, tell us a little bit about it what are some of the challenges you face there obviously a completely different business uh, different sector different customers yeah absolutely it's it's been a very fun journey for me i've been here six months and we've seen incredible growth over those last six months. We've, we've only had a product for about a year now. and We um, have raised a Series A and a Series B and grown the team just tremendously over that time. And so for us, we exist in this really special moment where we're helping companies hire people from around the world. And so obviously the pandemic has accelerated that movement for pretty much every company, at least that, that way of thinking. And within the, the HR and people space, the hiring, like hiring global employment in particular, the dynamics are just so different from a buffer dynamics or from a poly dynamics. You're dealing with different scale, you're dealing with um, different price points. You're, it's, it's just a very different motion altogether. So we're mostly sales led today. I think there's a product led um, component that a lot of other competitors in our space are looking at as well. Uh, but from a churn and retention standpoint, we have some really interesting dynamics of just how that are very closely related to how hiring works in general. So when you hire someone on our platform, you're not really going to no longer need to have someone hired on the software platform until that person no longer works for you. And so it's not like we experience churn when someone doesn't want to use this anymore or doesn't, doesn't, it's just very different in that sense. Like the trigger for churn is someone leaving your company as an employee rather than you tiring of the product or whatever there, there's a bit of switching that happens but not, even then the switch inertia is pretty high in our place and so that one of the key ways then is that people leave i think the other key way is that when you get to when you're hiring internationally one of the things that oyster enables you to do is not have to go through the the time and hassle and cost of setting up your own um, entity that's compliant and everything within that country like we handle that for you we have entities around the world and one of the other churn factors then is, will there be companies who reach a certain threshold of, oh, we're a U.S.-based company that now has 50 employees in France. It may make sense for that company then to set up their own entity in France, in which case they wouldn't need a product like ours anymore. Um, it's not a use case that happens very often at all, but it is like another churn trigger. And so we're very lucky that the, <laughs> the churn triggers are very few and far between in, in terms of volume and that they are very unique in terms of the, the types of companies that ever reach that stage. And it's been a neat differing churn journey than at Buffer and Poly. Yeah, for sure. I think like uh, what you're describing is like graduation churn when the customer becomes more successful and grows out of your platform. I think Buffer probably faced something similar as well. As companies started to grow and scale in size, they needed more sophisticated leaving that SMB space. But I definitely see how something like Oyster HR is almost the complete opposite where like churn is not really an issue because most of the times it's really outside of your control. There's not much you can do for stopping somebody's employees from leaving their company. So it really becomes a totally different game. And I think for like 
marketing and sales. Uh, if anything, it's more just about finding the right fit customers to begin with than anything else. There's like not much more you can do than that because once you are in it, it's like you said, like that inertia to like uproot my employees now and move to another provider and try and figure that all out. Like it gives me anxiety just like thinking, <laughs> <laughs> thinking about it. It does. You choose, so, you choose a solution like us to get rid of anxiety. So yeah, you don't want to exactly. that necessarily. Yeah. yeah, I think when from a marketing perspective, so yes, there's those those two scenarios where churn happens. A third one then is if customer experience is so bad that you just the customer is forced to look elsewhere. And we see we see the potential for that just given how complex it is to hire globally. And so from a marketing perspective, then it's important for us to set the proper expectations for what someone can and will receive from our service when they join. Otherwise, you know, they're going to join and be like, oh, well, what about this? What about that? And we're like, oh. It's not, yeah. not something we offer. So I think marketing's role then is, yes, let's acquire folks and achieve scale there because they're going to be such great, there's going to be such a great expansion and lifetime value from them. Um, but at the same time, let's make sure they know what they're getting when they join us so that there's no brand risk, there's no bad word of mouth, there's no churn from customer experience. So there's it's been a very interesting shift in perspective from marketing lens of like, how can we talk about Oyster in a way that people get exactly what they no, they're getting they join us. Yeah. And I think this is it's so important to remember as a marketer as well, like this point. So often like it's so easy to get lost in like overselling uh what you deliver. And in some business, it's critical that you really don't want to be overselling anything at all. You just like what you see on the box is what you get inside. Like people don't want surprises. Uh, and I think in some cases, like people can forgive things if they see things are coming. But when it comes to say, you're saying like in this case where you're actually hiring and there's uh, legal involved, there's accounting risk involved, like you need to know what you're walking into. And as a marketer, like you need to have a, you have a big responsibility then as well to ensure that's what you, you're going. And I think typically you try to uh, sugarcoat things. And in, in some cases, people end up trying to just polish turds. I think this was like a, a saying we used to hear quite yes. a bit. But uh, sometimes you just need to like say, okay, our product is shit, but uh, this is things they are coming and they are improving. I'm not saying that uh, anything That's is shit, so but funny. yeah. No, it's, it's true. I, th- I think there's, I've always felt this tension between marketing wanting to be this very forward looking and like streets ahead view of like, we, we are leading the company forward in the, this aspirational vision of what we expect to become. Whereas that's maybe not reality today. Like that's a very tricky line to balance, balance in a way. And so that, that's always part of the conversation for me. Another interesting piece of that is when I was at Buffer, this didn't happen. This only happened once. So it, it's not indicative of, of what we were building there. But I remember someone once told me, like the person who was leading our product launch campaign, we didn't want them to hear any customer feedback or read any reviews or know anything like that. We just wanted them to have this like, like ignorance is bliss perspective when it came to promoting the product so that they was like all rainbows and sunshine and this is great, which I think is um, such a wonderful place to like to operate from. I, I don't want, when I'm putting together messaging for a product, I don't want to be um, pulled down into, well, it doesn't really do this or I don't know if this is 100% really. Let's start from the idealized perfect state and build our messaging there. And then yes, let's hold it up to the fire and make sure it's actually true, but you know, that's, I think that's where the balance is. Like you start from that place of this is the best thing ever and then maybe back up a little bit from that for reality. I think that ends up with the best balance on that perspective. Yeah. I think with everything, because sometimes being too restrictive from the start, you just end up, even on the product side, just like 
delivering a subpar product in the way of thinking and uh, stuff. It's see the future and then like, what are the steps we can take now to get there? And let's talk about that and let's move in. Yeah, that, I think the consistency is probably other piece. So if we're excited from our, our first moment when you get in touch with us and the messaging, what brought you into to Buffer or Polly or Oyster? Let's continue with that throughout the customer journey then. It's not just, hey, come over here, look at us, how great this is. You sign up and then we forget about you. It's this yeah. how great it is. And then throughout the journey, you're part of something great. You're part of something great. You're part of something great. See what's happening. And that's, I think, the key to shifting that from we're here just to acquire you to we're here to build a relationship with you and keep you over time. Repetition. Uh, cool. I see we're running up on time, Kevin. It's been great chatting. I have one question I ask every guest and I'm going to ask you the same. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that you join a new company, Turner Attention is not doing great at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Kevin, like we really need to turn things around. We have 90 days to reduce churn. You're in charge. What do you do? But the caveat is you're not going to tell me I'm going to go and speak to customers and understand what the biggest pain point is and then start there. You're just going to choose something that you've seen be effective in reducing churn fast in the past and run with that playbook blindly. What would you choose? Oh, you did make it harder. You took away all the easy options. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I'll give you two answers. Um, you're not going to like the first answer. The first answer is uh, I don't know. That, I don't know that I would join a company where churn is such a big problem that I have to focus on in my first ninety days. And so, just a note that I think that's something I've learned to ask in the interview process is at least your churn. That does not answer your question. So. The real answer to the question, I think for us at Buffer, something that was really important was lifecycle emails, specifically the Dunning emails that happen around payments. And so that would be the playbook that I would run. Let's shore those up. Let's deliver delight there. Let's make sure they're delivering correctly and working correctly and, and optimize that payment state. It's interesting. The, the email specifically is one. You can see that definitely when you have the volume and size of Buffer as well, like a few small percentage points can make quite a big difference in level numbers. Yeah, that's cool. a great point. Last question then is, what's one thing that you know today about churn and retention that you wish you knew when you got started with your career? Oh, so I, I didn't give churn and retention enough importance and priority when I started. And so I think you have to solve for churn and retention before you solve for else. Everything else is, all your returns are going to be diminished unless you solve at the bottom and so for me i started solving at the top let's acquire let's get as many people in here as possible yeah. um, which is great also but it's not going to have the the impact that you want if they're all falling out of the funnel at the end absolutely it's definitely we talk about this a lot in the show and i think like acquiring customers is sexy but keeping them hasn't been so much in the past but more and more people now realizing this they're just like nothing else matters in a subscription business if people are canceling subscriptions like what business do you have so it's uh, yes, it's there nice i mean is there any final thoughts uh, you want to leave the listeners with how can they keep up to speed with your work um before we go yeah so, yeah, so i'm uh kevin lee on all the social channels k-e-v-a-n-l-e-e and i write a weekly newsletter that goes out on sundays you can find that on substack it's lee substack uh, and my website is Kevin Lee. So I'm, I'm fortunate to have a weird spelling name or a different spelling name. So I have all my usernames everywhere. Very nice. Yeah, we'll definitely make sure we'll drop those in the show notes as well for you. So if you uh, want to check that out there too. But yeah, so thanks so much. It was great chatting today. Uh, Kevin, wish you best of luck now going forward. Great. Thanks so much, Andrew. Appreciate it. Cheers.
And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.